Hello. Tony Birch, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Michael. How are you? I am very well. Now, I am ringing uh, on the topic of Brainy Doyle because you recommended her latest book as your summer reading pick at the end of last year, and I read it over summer, and I absolutely adored it. And I just wanted to um, ask you what it was in particular that you most liked about it. Um, I picked up the novel with, with little knowledge of what it was, so I was really looking at an author whose work I'd previously admired. I suppose it was really that there were themes in the book that were really close to home to me. So it was set during um, lockdown in Australia, during the COVID crisis, and it's a book that looks at the isolation because of that. But isolation in conjunction with someone dealing with, with deep grief. So it's about the, the loss of a partner and, and uh, eventually the loss of her father, who she's very close to. I felt that the subject matter was important to me because my younger brother had died at the beginning of COVID and I'd gone through a similar experience of, of you know, being both isolated and you know, loneliness and being alone um, at the same time. And I really, I was really affected by the way that Bryony dealt with that for the character BB. It's a very honest novel and it's a really beautiful work so that I felt really intimately attached to the character. And I felt by the end of the novel of someone, although still working through the process of grief, you really got a sense of someone who'd come through a horror. And as you do with characters you love in a book, you're really willing them to, to be well, I suppose. Tony Birch, you should really host your own podcast. I would listen to you talk about books all day, every day. I'm so grateful to you for making the time today. Well, I am available at a certain fee. Okay, well, I, I know your fee and I can't afford you, but uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll track you down in the streets of Carlton. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Tony. Bye. Bye, mate. I'm Michael Williams, and this is Read This, a show about the books we love and the stories behind them. I was a huge fan of Bryony Doyle's first two novels, The Island Will Sink and Echolalia, and I was definitely keen to read more. But for some reason I put off reading her latest book, Why We're Here. I think it was because I heard it described as a COVID novel, and I wasn't sure I had the appetite for it. But even though it was written in Melbourne during the COVID-19 lockdowns, even though it is in no small part a meditation on collective and individual grief inspired by that singular period, it's so much more. As Tony Birch promised in his recommendation, it's a deeply humane novel. It's about loss and about community about the relationships we form with dogs and the solace they can offer when we're feeling broken. It's the story of writer Bibi, who's lost her father and partner in close succession and moved to the coastal suburbs of Silver City, where she's mistaken as a dog trainer and forms an unlikely bond with a vicious Doberman. Dogs, grief and isolation. I loved it. And I was immediately keen to talk to Bryony about how it all came together. So Why We Are Here was written in a completely different way than my previous two novels. So The Island Will Sink, I wrote over a period of 10 years and I wrote it and rewrote it and came back to it and tossed it out and all of that kind of stuff, which is, I think, pretty typical for a debut. And Echolalia was incredibly plotted. I was really careful about the design of that novel and I was incredibly intentional about what each section would do. And, I, you know, I had a little piece of paper above my workstation that said 
this is what this novel is about in, in a little condensed sort of research question so that any time I started freaking out about why I was writing it, I could return to it and return to that as the impetus of future um, scene development. Uh, with Why We Are Here, I wrote it during the pandemic. Uh, one of my main intentions with that novel was to loosen up my practice and, and find uh, experimental generative way to write and just to kind of go with it as well. I wanted a looseness in that. And I think that that's reflected in the prose style. So I didn't really have a sense of where it was going. I think of all my novels as basically the same novel, even though they're vastly different in terms of genre and subject matter, but they're all about reckoning with personal and collective grief as they intersect, whether that's in relation to futurity in terms of climate, whether that's in relation to the bereavement that BB suffers in Why We Are Here is a personal bereavement, but it also speaks to the grievability of lives more broadly. So yeah, I feel like I've been addressing these same questions in vastly different forms in all my work. So why is that? Is that because you think writing through these things is a way to process them and a way to usefully engage with them? Or is that something that is particular to the novel, you think, in terms of its responsibility to the collective? Good question. Good question. Um, I always hesitate to put an onus on a form, like novels have to do this or art has to do that. But personally, as a writer, I find these questions inescapable. So I think, you know, I definitely set out to think through um, climate and disaster and the spectacle in The Island Will Sink. And certainly my second book, which wasn't a novel, it was nonfiction adult fantasy. And that was very literally about finding places of solidarity and difference and how those things are politically constructed and culturally constructed and economically constructed. Um, but with Echolalia, uh, you know, I kind of set out to write a domestic thriller, and it was going to intersect with these questions, but not as um, specifically as it ended up. I just found that I couldn't escape the questions of climate. I couldn't write into that space without thinking about, you know, what is our responsibility to the environment and to non-human others? You know, how does the way that we live in human communities reflect our refusal of certain other kinds of responsibility? Um, and how do we centre certain kinds of grief against other kinds of grief and certain kinds of violence against other other kinds of violence. So I just sort of felt like I couldn't ignore it. The the main character of why we are here, Bibi, is a writer. And one of the things you give us insight to is the relationship for her between the work that she wants to be writing or intends to be writing and the one that she finds that she's able to write. And I'm curious, is that very true to how it is for you, the the having one idea in your head and the other one on the page? Yeah, totally. I mean, I was kind of satirising an experience that I feel like I have, but lots of writers have, where they're like, God, wouldn't it be great if you could just write a thriller, make some money and, you know, have a comfortable life? But at the same time, what draws us into being writers and being artists is often um, an obsessive interest in political questions that are uncomfortable and often unpopular. You know, you're not necessarily going to get your bestseller out of an infanticide novel that is looking at how we're collectively culpable for terrible acts of violence. You know, I think like the idea that if you can write something dark and dense and uh, fearless that you should be able to write something fluffy and best-selling is something that I've heard a lot of writers express sorrow about. But at the same rate, it comes back to that, you know, what makes art worthwhile? Would you rather 
be able to, I don't know, toss out a novel about the love affairs of surfers or would you prefer to be able to use your writing to really think through and process our collective realities? I 100% just want to find out whether the love affairs of surfers is an aspirational novel for you or a dig (laughs) at Tim Winton or both. Uh, I think both. I think both. (laughs) Good. I'll take that. Absolutely. Given your recurring fascination with the collective versus the individual, um, the fact that Why We're Here is a pandemic novel seems significant to me because it was a moment where our notions of the collective and our relationship with the collective changed fundamentally. We didn't have access to it in the same way. Uh, We had to rethink questions of community and solitude uh, in really kind of quite radical ways. And I'm interested in how that informed this specific book? It was completely fundamental. If COVID hadn't happened, the novel wouldn't have happened. But also, if I hadn't have been in Melbourne for COVID as well, it wouldn't have been the same novel. It was fundamentally born out of that experience. And you're right, you know, on the one hand, we didn't have access to the collective. All of those things that we do together to be a community were gone. On the other hand, we were more intellectually or theoretically linked to a collective than we've ever felt like we were before. And then this experience that I had of, you know, my father was um, sick and he ultimately died during the pandemic and of realising that, oh, I remember being in Melbourne and talking to a friend in in Sydney and saying, I'm not sure if I'm going to see my dad again alive because of this, the ring of steel, you know, um, and, and being able to get to and from and in and out of Melbourne. And then, you know, my experience in the aftermath of all that, and that's a concept that the novel um, deals with a lot as well. What is aftermath? Like, when does an event like that end? What does it do to our psyches? Again, individually, collectively. I, I went from um, Melbourne to Sydney And I managed to get across the border and I had a jerry can, you know, I had all this stuff. I was like, I'll not be stopping anywhere along the way. You know, I've come from the COVID centre and getting across to Gundagai and, you know, people were maskless. They were like touching, wanted to touch my dog, wanted to come close to me, wanted to do all these things and the shock of that. So I think like that experience really informed the intention of that book, but then also going back into the isolation. So that that concept of aftermath of being like, oh, I've gotten through a thing and it's over and now I'll go and process it. And with COVID, very literally, we went back into lockdown again. So it troubled the idea of what I would have called somewhere else in some other text as an apocalyptic revelation, right? Like there's an end of a world which reveals the new world to come. It was like, no, no, you're still in it. And also if there is any new world, it's a hodgepodge of old and new and crisis and it's within you and for you all to be building, you know, in real time, um, even though that's going to be necessarily delayed by the fact of of these um, rules about isolation. When in it, in lockdown, were you one of those writers who wrote in lockdown or did the corrosive effect it had on one's sense of self affect your creativity? So not initially. Um, in the first year of the COVID lockdowns in Melbourne, uh, I don't remember writing. I, I Honestly, that year was such a blur. I don't know if I wrote anything, but in the second big lockdown, Yes, I wrote every day. There were some key differences there, I guess. In that second lot of COVID lockdowns, I lived alone for the first time in my life. And, you know, I lived alone in a spot that wasn't close to any sort of community of my own. So I think it just made sense to write 
but I didn't write what I was supposed to be writing, which was this big um, climate fiction about a drone hunting a rhinoceros and it was going to be about climate grief and it was a big set across three continents novel and I just couldn't do it. And I mean, maybe if I had been able to, it would have given me more of an escape, but instead I kind of pulled into what was happening in the here and now, which I'm, I'm glad that I did. It's wonderful to feel like I wrote a novel that, had to be written in the time and place that it was written in. That idea of had to be written, I imagine, begins as an internal feeling. This is the one I need to write for me. Um, It must be nice to discover that it's the one that had to be written for other people as well, for readers to come across it and go, you've tapped into part of my lived experience, part of my grief, part of my dislocation in these fundamental ways. That relationship between writing for self and writing for others, has that changed for you across your career? Yes. So uh, I guess um, the first two novels, I had audience in mind for sure. And I had ideas that I wanted to share with the audience. This novel, I didn't even think this is a novel that will be X and Y until I was quite far into it. I was just writing. It's interesting because this novel has a lot of different levels of reception. Some people don't identify with it at all, and that's totally fine. Some people who've experienced grief, particularly grief during the pandemic where you couldn't have funerals and all the rest of it, have contacted me and been like, oh, thank you so much for writing this. And then the novel engages with Elegy. It is a novel, but it is autofictional. So it does have the, the two characters who are not characters really, but just remembered people, my father and my partner, who both died in the period between 2019 and um, end of 2020, they speak in their own voices. So then there's another um, audience, I suppose, who are the friends and family of those people who have said, oh, it's amazing to hear their voices. And then Another thing that was a total surprise to me has been uh, like doing interviews and writers' festivals and stuff. There's been quite a few women who've said, oh, I love the father character. I think he's so great. And I I thought, ah, you know, my dad would really love that, that he's kind of (laughs) impressing women from beyond the grave. We'll be right back. The Saturday Paper's food editors are some of the country's leading chefs, including Andrew McConnell, Otama Carey, David Moyle and Karen Martini. Let them guide your cooking when you sign up to Schwartz Media's free weekly newsletter, The Food. It features the latest recipe from the Saturday Paper, along with a selection of seasonal dishes suitable for all cooks. Subscribe today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. There's this funny recurring conceit in Why We Are Here where Bryony Doyle's protagonist, Bibi, mistakenly believes she's hearing the words of Judith Butler and others being piped from the loudspeakers of a nearby prison. It's absurd and vaguely unsettling, but it also captures one of the real pleasures of this novel. This is a book that is very much in conversation with the other writers Bryony's reading. And in particular, it means that she's engaging with a tradition of autofiction, thinking about the relationship between personal experience and what we read, and doing that to reflect the nature of grief. So because of the 
way that I was writing this book on little notepads and in fragments. And I was also over that period of time from my partner's death in 2019 was reading a lot about grief, whether that was in terms of theory or whether that was um, other novels. And I was really interested in, in autofiction. There's been a lot of really great writing in that space lately and thinking about Deborah Levi and Sigrid Nunez and Annie Ano, you know, all of these writers are doing really excellent work in that space. So I'd been reading all of that and also taking notes. So it, it felt just totally organic that these um, citations would come into the writing. But when I did come up with the idea that the protagonist mishears the local prison um, announcements as citing quotations, I, I was like, yes, this is a great way to get it in and allow this kind of often quite meaty um, ideas to appear in a quite a surreal and almost funny way, but also allow it to be um, less essayistic in, insofar as the citational nature of the book can just kind of appear rather than be a sort of a grappling as you would have in an essay. And yeah, I feel like a lot of people who do experience grief will go to novels. Um, and I know this from people writing to me about it, um, but also just from talking to other people who've have, who've had extreme bereavement, we go to novels, we go to art to find solidarity and to find different lenses for processing where we are. So, yeah, I wanted to do that um, kind of engagement, but I also on an aesthetic level, I'm interested in how art enters conversation with itself and I'm interested in how we go through particular aesthetic moments and I certainly didn't want to pretend that that wasn't happening in my manuscript. It, it makes it an incredibly rich read. I'm very interested in that relationship between the intellectual and the emotional when it comes to doing that. You've got a great Deborah Levy quote in there. A female writer cannot afford to feel her life too clearly. If she does, she will write in a rage when she should write calmly, um, which I think is fabulous. What's the relationship between writing in a rage or in grief and writing calmly for you? Yeah, so I guess the publishable writing is the writing that even if it comes from rage, comes back to some point of calm where you can edit it and shape it to a point where someone will read it, particularly if you are a woman writer, I think. Um, which I'm not, I, I don't say that without an edge of criticism. You know, I think that women should be allowed to write in a rage about lives they see and feel clearly. That said, it is not my experience. And as a writing teacher of many years who reads lots and lots of screeds <laughs> and puts in the margins, you know, is there a way to introduce another voice here or is there a way to have another perspective here? I also am critically aware of how creating richness, creating calm, creating conversation in writing makes it inherently more engaging. And you need your reader to engage, even if what is motivating it is pure political anger or, you know, um, irrepressible sexual desire, whatever it is, you've got to find a way to let the reader into that and, and the reader to feel like they have a place in that work. Mm. Yeah, the best editorial note I ever saw in a margin was, I can see why you needed to write this, but no one needs to read this. <laughs> wow, that's brutal, but probably true of a lot of writing. Not unfamiliar. Like, it, yeah. it, it is a thing. There are a number of choices in this book, very deliberate stylistic choices. You choose not to name the cities that feature in the book. Bibi's late partners always referred to as he or him, uh, but capitalised giving him a particular kind of presence in the page. When did you hit upon those kind of devices and how did you know they were right for the story you were telling? 
So the story was always set in a fictionalised city. It's been funny, though, in reviews, people have been a bit like, gotcha, that's Sydney. <laughs> like, I'm, I, it's very thinly veiled. Um, and it's more of a joke than it is. I mean, I was trying to be clever and make a joke about colonisation and really, like, our place names are fairly arbitrary um, and they don't bear witness to what is actually happening on that land. So I called Sydney Silver City, which I think is funny. It's, it tickles me anyway, and I did that from the start. Um, but I was also kind of nodding towards the fact that cities, even more than smaller places, I think, but all places, we collectively invent them. They are fictions, they are narratives in various ways. And so I was sort of um, gesturing toward that. In terms of uh, referring to the character of the dead partner as he, that just happened without any real thought. There's a lot of devices of memoir that I find earnest and I wanted to avoid because this is a novel. So in memoir, a lot of the time, people will use the first letter of someone's name. And I just didn't want to do anything like that. I just didn't want this to be an earnest memoir, even though it engages with loss and it engages with some aspects of my life. But also in capitalising he and him, I was sort of, when you lose a partner, they come to be a kind of a central access of your life in the, in the way that a god is. They're almost deified. I, I wanted this book to really do with language what these emotional um, truths due to the way we think about time, the way we process our lives, all of that kind of stuff. Like I was really thinking through narrative really and what narrative can do and what certain events do to the way that we narrate our own um, trajectory through time, I guess. The relationship between narrative and healing seems to me to be a pretty fraught one. The one doesn't automatically lead to the other. Exactly. I think there's no there's no way to narrativize your way out of trouble. And if anything, you know, the more you narrate, the, the deeper your hole. I've got that metaphor in the book of writing being going out into the yard and digging a hole all day. And sometimes there's an actual hole there. And sometimes you, the earth is just collapsing in on itself and you're just dirty and sweating and sitting in front of just some mushed up ground. Um, and I, I definitely think that that's true. I don't believe any of the kind of wellness guru's ideas about your story being your empowering thing. I think we can delude ourselves with narrative just as much as we might be able to comfort ourselves. And I also think that um, narratives around, um, I'm using air quotes for the radio, but I'm <laughs> using my hands for the Zoom, um, narratives uh, which prescribe empowerment also, you know, they block people out, they, they um, solidify things that aren't solid, they reify things that aren't tangible, and narratives that don't call attention to the messiness of narrative pretend like that's not happening. And certainly with this book, I definitely wasn't interested in doing that. It is also like that one of the features of autofiction is writers trying to complicate that in relation to themselves. So less about what's real and what's fictional and more about what's aspirational and what's um, self-critical in the way that their own experience appears on the page. Those moments when they're very conscious that the character, the avatar of themselves, is either behaving better than they did in real life or worse than they did in real life. But did you have conscious moments where you 
tip the scales where you wanted your reader to find BB actively different to you? Oh, totally. I mean, I think of BB in retrospect as like a doll version, like how kids play imaginary games with dolls where they send the doll out into a situation and they like talk for it. So I wanted to do that with BB. Like I didn't want to write an earnest memoir about grieving. I wanted to write a novel about um, dealing with collective and personal loss and, you know, reading and dog training and um, Australian suburbia and class and all of these things I wanted to do. So I kind of took Baby and I'd put her in weird situations and a lot of the a lot of the things that happen in the novel never happen. Not every character is based on a, a real person at all. Um, a lot of the situations never occurred. And so putting Baby, who is a protagonist who has some of my qualities and two of my life experiences and my job out into the world and being like, oh, like, you know, what would she do in this surreal way? wild situation and and that was really great um and really fun and of course what an activity for an only child living alone for the first time during COVID lockdowns right like of course like I'm probably only just realizing this now Michael but of course I went into full make-believe mode it's like a coping strategy of only children everywhere right so I, I started playing the like what if you were doing this instead game um except I did it on the page Oof. I don't tell no. my publisher. <laughs> no, I, I love that. I think your publisher's the lucky recipient of that <laughs> approach. I, I've got to clarify, though, if not every human, not every situation is real, surely every dog in the book is based on a real dog. <laughs> no, not every dog. The, the auxiliary dogs are, are not based on real dogs or not all of them, but the Doberman is a real dog. And actually, probably if there were ethical obligations, my biggest ethical obligation is to the Doberman, who has been misrepresented in this book. Um, (laughs) uh, The Doberman and I do not have a tight relationship. Um, In fact, we've never met. And uh, I have met the Doberman's owner. And the Doberman's owner did mistake me for a dog trainer, but it went as far as that one meeting. Um, But... I do still live in this condemned apartment and I walk past that house quite often with the Doberman and he comes running to the fence and barking and I think, oh, if only you knew. (laughs) I've written a whole novel about you. (laughs) I I feel like the Doberman wouldn't be kind to you on Goodreads. Having been misrepresented, there would be a, a very sniffy response. Now, I have to ask, we are chatting on Zoom currently and there is behind you, perfectly framed in the shot, a picture... Uh, Could you describe that artwork and tell me who it is in the middle of it? Um, Well, the painting is a reimagining of Wanderer Above Sea Fog by uh, Caspar David Friedrich, which is one of those uh, classic um, paintings of the sublime where there's a man and he's looking out over a stormy sea, contemplating, you know, the chasm between art and nature and the sublime. And it's reimagined by the artist Luciana Smith. And instead of a man in the centre of the portrait, it features a dog and it is a pet portrait of my dog, Amy, aka Baby. Oh, she's the muse of the novel. Um, and she did have a very wise, kind of pensive quality toward her. And she did like to look out to sea, which is, a, a, you know, an unusually thoughtful quality for a dog. Was she a dog that was made to be a muse? Because I think in my family, we've always been a doggy family. 
And the dogs that are most remembered and have most inspired creative things are the stupidest of the dogs who at the time had no sense of self-possession or whatever, but somehow they've, they've inspired more in the family. Is that fair to Baby or was Baby made of sterner stuff? Oh, no, Michael. Baby was a genius. She uh, was good. a genius. And at this point I should reiterate that no dogs die in the novel Why We Are Here, if you're thinking about buying this novel and you don't want to see anything bad happen to a dog, nothing bad happens to the dog at all. They they steal the show in every way. Um, but time passes quicker than novels get written and published, it seems. And so she has since passed away and that's part of the reason I have this portrait. Uh, yeah, no, she was a genius and also just it was a very specific circumstance of life that she was with me through um, and so we were kind of one emotional unit together and certainly I imagine some of her intellectualism I'm sure but she also helped me grapple with just the emotional presence of life as dogs are so good at doing. One of the big kind of ideas around grief and one of the themes that you handle so beautifully in your book is the inarticulacy of grief, how impossible it feels when we're going through loss to find words for it. And one of the things I think that's so beautiful in your book is that it's partly about articulating oneself in a relationship with animals, the stuff that goes beyond words or the ways in which we find a different register of words in our relationship with animals. Dogs and grief seem like good companions to me. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I'm not the first writer to have written about dogs and grief, but I also do think that being present with witnessing, sharing lives with non-human others, we access repressed parts of ourselves that are so important, not just for getting through our human lives, but for seeing the world and its interconnectedness. Um, with any kind of clarity. I'm not going to say it allows you to see clearly or it solves problems or anything like that, but certainly it gives you a set of sensitivities, languages, um, ways of noticing the world that you wouldn't otherwise have access to. Bryony Doyle, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Michael. It was really wonderful. Such a good conversation. Bryony Doyle's novel, Why We Are Here, is available at all good bookstores now. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, The Saturday Paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Before we go, I wanted to tell you what I've been reading this week. Bunjalung author Charlene Allsop's debut novel, The Great Undoing, is a very fun, very smart bit of speculative fiction that's set in this horrifying, imagined near future. I don't want to give away too much of its central conceit, but think tech, apocalypse, colonial thriller, and you're some of the way there. It's wild. And the latest Teju Cole is also brilliant. If you haven't read him before, the Nigerian-American writer, critic and photographer is always thoughtful and thought-provoking. I love his stuff. His newest novel is called Tremor, and it's about art and colonialism and history and identity and all those naughty ideas. You can find these books and all the others we mentioned at your favourite independent bookstore. You can also find Tony Birch's latest book, Women and Children, there. We recommend that always. 
that's it for this week's show. Next week on Read This, Saturday Paper Editor-in-Chief Eric Jensen talks about one of his favourite authors, the late, great Kate Jennings. So one of the things I really admire in her work is she kind of showed me that you shouldn't write a book if that book isn't capable of destroying you. Read This is produced and edited by Clara Ames. Mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher. With special thanks this week to Rachel Cusick. Thanks for listening. See you next week.